Let's pray together. Scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perchance for a good man one might even dare to die. But you, Father, commend your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a rock, what a foundation to stand on tonight as we look at the book of Job. And I thank you for it with all my heart, as we all do. And now, Lord, I ask for your help in handling this massive book of 42 chapters and this massive truth of your love and mercy and sovereignty and suffering. I ask that you would keep me faithful to the word and balanced biblically with affections in my heart that correspond to the truth of the page. And I ask for my listeners that they would have minds to grasp and hearts to embrace the beauty of what is revealed here. We pray with the psalmist, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Guard us from the evil one, his distortions and distractions, I pray. Give us a heart for you that is bigger than our affections for this world and this life. May we say with the psalmist, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please take it and open it to the book of Job which is uh, near Psalms, in the middle, Job Psalms. Before we look at uh, chapters 1 and 2 tonight, I want to lead in with five observations, five preliminary observations to set the stage for what we're doing. Number one, Job is quoted once, clearly, probably more times in the New Testament, namely in 1 Corinthians 3.19. He catches the wise in their craftiness. What's peculiar about this and very relevant is that it says, for it is written. It's very important because it shows that Paul is quoting Job as Scripture. For it is written, and then he quotes Job 5, 9, or 5, 12. 5, 9 is quoted probably in Romans 11, but this one is for sure. Job 5, 12, quoted in 1 Corinthians 3, 19. And we know what Paul believes about Scripture from 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So I just say, as the banner flying over the lesson, is that the Apostle Paul quotes it as Scripture, and then he defines Scripture as that which is inspired by God, and therefore we have at least apostolic warrant for saying that what I say is from a book that is inspired by God. That's my confidence. I believe the whole Bible is inspired by God, but if you need a particular reason 
for why you would say any particular book is, there is a reason Paul warrants Job by calling it Scripture and then describing Scripture as inspired. Here's my second observation by way of preliminary remark. In chapter 42, at the end, when it's all said and done, and uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have done all of their bad theologizing and have sinned against God's servant Job, uh, God tells them to go to Job and ask Job to pray for them that they might not uh, have any bad consequences come. It doesn't use the word forgiveness, but that's the essence of it, that they might be forgiven for their sin against Job. And he does that, making a burnt offering for them. Now, I point this out because from the New Testament, in particular Romans 3, 25 and 26, we are told that Christ Jesus is put forward by the Father as a demonstration of God's righteousness, and he did this because he had passed over sins done beforehand in order that it might be seen that God is righteous, that he is both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. It was a great theological problem that God had forgiven sins in the Old Testament. Most Americans have exactly the opposite problem with God, namely, things go bad for them. Paul's main problem with God is that things go good for sinners. This is a very big problem for God. How can a just God just say to sinners, I forgive you? No penalty, no hell, no jail time. Any human judge that acts that way, we unseat him, we get a new judge that puts people in jail when they're supposed to go to jail. So this is a huge problem for the justice of God, and you know the answer, it's the cross. And so I want to put Christ clearly, explicitly, Jesus, hear this Jesus, I am putting Christ underneath Job as the foundation of this book, because it's not about Christ explicitly, And I want to say explicitly at the beginning, it's all built on Christ. So I'm not going to talk about Jesus and the cross a lot, but I want you to remember everything good that comes your way through the book of Job was bought by Jesus Christ. Number three, third observation. This book is 42 chapters long and I have four hours. Do you know, does anybody know how many sermons John Calvin preached on the book of Job? Almost. Keep going. One more. You got it. 159. He was almost there. 159 sermons. I get four. And as I was thinking about this afternoon, I thought that's about right. Because I think I might, it might still be an overstatement that this brain is about 140th of Calvin's brain. I think that's it's okay that I get four and he gets 160, roughly. So just understand we can't take every verse. We are going to try to go for gold. We're going to go for the root. We're going to go for the essence and the center. We do have some help in that from the New Testament. James 5, 11 You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. 
If you've ever doubted what the point of the book of Job is, read James 5.11. It's all aiming towards 42, towards chapter 42, and the display of a God who is sovereignly merciful and compassionate in the lives of his suffering saints. So we're going to try to talk about sovereignty and mercy and compassion and suffering and thus be faithful to the New Testament observation that this is what it's all about. Purposeful sovereignty, patient faith in the enduring prophet, he's called, and the glory of God's mercy. Fourth observation by way of preliminary remark. We are in a day, and it's not new at all, but it's aggressive, where the teachings of this book, as I understand them, are militantly resisted and denied by evangelicals. And I'll quote you several, so that you'll know I'm not making this up or overstating the case, and I will tell you who they are because they might have their books downstairs. And uh, (laughs) if they do, read them critically, just as you read mine critically, all right? Um, Some contemporary voices. There's nothing contemporary about their teaching. First, a voice that's not contemporary, although William Barclay wrote so many commentaries before he died here some years ago, and most pastors of, of the generation just before me fed on those, evangelical pastors fed on those liberal commentaries because they were so practically useful. Barclay was so practical that you could go to almost any pastor over 55 and find William Barclay and uh, he would be using him. Now, he was a liberal and his view of the atonement and his view of the Bible and his view of suffering were atrocious in my judgment, and it's a shame that we are so undiscerning that he would be staple in our preparations, I think. Let me read you what he said. He wrote a spiritual autobiography, and uh, I get this quote from that. I believe that pain and suffering are never the will of God for his children. I cannot conceive that it is the will of God that anyone should be run over by a driver under the influence of drink or that a young mother should die of leukemia or that someone in the first flush of youth should face the increasing helplessness of arteriosclerosis. Well, I'm a pastor and I've been in a church now for 20 years and if that were my message, I would quit in a minute because I did bury a 38-year-old mother of four after breast cancer. And she, on a video like these screens, spoke to us about some weeks before she died and had a very different theology to carry her through to the end. And thanked God for her cancer as she had her little bandana on with no hair on her head in the hospital bed that was in her living room where she died some weeks later with her children around her and people. And it was not an easy death. And it was God Almighty and her confidence in his loving purposefulness for these kids through that, not in spite of that that kept her going. And right now I have a man in our church who's about 36 or so who has Parkinson's disease and he comes to the prayer meetings in the morning and his hand just goes like this. We're not talking 66 or 86 here, but 36. And he wrote a six-page story about it and he called it Parkinson's. 
offered to God. Parked incense. And he makes songs, he writes songs about it. And, and uh, he goes up on mountains to offer God his parked incense. There's a different theology at our church. You must weigh whether this theology that I will try to unfold to you from the book of Job is true or not, but it's not that. Open theism is the most contemporary challenge these days. It's called open theism, and it is represented by people like Clark Pinnock and John Sanders, the God who risks, who I'll quote. Greg Boyd is the most popular writer, Letters from a Skeptic, God at War, God of the Possible. And here is a quote from John Sanders' book, The God Who Risks, published a year or two ago. God does not have a specific divine purpose for each and every occurrence of evil. When a two-month-old child contracts a painful, incurable bone cancer that means suffering and death, it is a pointless evil. The Holocaust is a pointless evil. The rape and dismemberment of a young girl is a pointless evil. The accident that caused my brother's death was a tragedy. God does not have a specific purpose in mind for these occurrences, end quote. I think that's wrong. Quote from Greg Boyd. When an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of tragedy caused by someone else, but this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. That was from letters from a skeptic, and this is from God at War. Neither Jesus nor his disciples assumed that there had to be a divine purpose behind all events in history. The Bible does not assume that every particular evil has a particular godly purpose behind it. Enough of those quotes. So I point that out as the fourth observation by way of preliminary so that you know the issues we're dealing with here are not of remote theological significance. They are immediate theological and personal and practical and pastoral significance, and they are opposed in many places. My fifth and last observation will catapult us now into these first two chapters. I come to you as a, a pastor, and uh, my goal pastorally is the same goal I have for my people. I would like to prepare you in your mind with a way of thinking about God and in your heart with a way of embracing God for your calamity. Because it's coming. It's going to come. Yours will come. It has come for some of you, and you've made it. And another one will come. Some of you are in it, and others of you will have to wait some time for it. If you come into the room feeling... God has been so good to me, I've never had a day of sickness in my life, and I've never been persecuted significantly. You will be, especially if you want to be obedient. You will be. That's what Paul said. He who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, and you will get sick. Those who have the Holy Spirit groan, groan inwardly. Romans 8 says, awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're all under the curse, and we're all under the fall, and we all groan, and we will die. 
This outer nature is wasting away, Paul said. It wastes away in all kinds of horrible ways for all of us, and you will have your calamity. So my goal, you know, when I came to Bethlehem 20 years ago this summer, uh, in fact, who knows, this may even be the anniversary, I don't know, but in the first five messages that I gave, I tried to give some, some very practical radicals, you'd say, or roots of my theology, so they would always know where I'm coming from with regard to these kinds of things. And one of the things a pastor needs to put on the table immediately is a sermon called Christ and Cancer. So I preached. Probably the fifth sermon I preached in my church was Christ and Cancer. So they'd know what I say when I come to their hospital room right after they've been shaving and they suddenly feel something strange here. And they go to get it checked out and their life is never the same again. Maybe they have six weeks, maybe they have six years, maybe it's six months, and they wonder what I think about that. Is this the devil? Is this sin? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Neither he nor his parents sinned, but it was that God might get glory. So there, there are answers, and I'll give you my answers in these next four hours together, but my goal is that pastorally I would... For those of you who will agree and have it, I will build into your mind, just a little more firmly perhaps than is already there, a vision of God, of heaven, of life, of hell, of suffering, of Christ, of the ways of providence that will establish you so deeply that when the wave breaks over you, you won't lose your footing and get mad at God. So many people are mad at God. And so many pastors are telling them it's okay. It's never okay to be mad at God. Never. Qualify. It is okay to say you're mad at God if you're mad at God. In other words, don't compound the first sin with hypocrisy. The psalmist didn't and Jeremiah didn't. It's never right to be mad at God it is right to say you're mad at God if you're mad at God. And then repent twice. Well, once. No, once. Twice if you don't say it. It's never right to be angry at God, as hard as that may be. And the only way not to get angry at God is to have your faith in his sovereign goodness so massively grounded that when the waves break over you, you have categories in your mind and affections in your heart that can handle that. Put your hand upon your mouth and kiss the rod. So, let's go now to chapter 1. So, if you have your Bible, we want to come to Job and, and let this writer speak. You know, I, I'm not going to talk about when it was written, who wrote it, and, and where, because nobody knows these things. <laughs> I just bought a new commentary so I could kind of just do, you know, get up to speed again on some introductory matters and see if anything new had been seen since I last worked through this five years ago when I, when I taught it to my people. And uh, no, nothing has. <laughs> we still don't know anything. Nobody knows who wrote Job. Nobody knows when it was written. Nobody knows where it was written. And there's probably a divine intentionality about that. It's universal. It's timeless. It's meant for you now. No particular time, no particular place, no particular kind of author. 
It's just there. And we don't quite know how it got there. We just know that the uh, apostolic authority is on it and it coheres with the rest of the Bible and we embrace it as Scripture, as God's Word, and then we try to understand it. Verse 1 introduces the man Job. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In other words, if you're looking for a candidate for suffering, he's not a good one. That's the point here. He's blameless. He's upright. He's one who fears God. He turns away from evil. He's known for his reverence to God. Verses 2 and 3 describe the way God had blessed him. So you add a statement of his reverence to evidences of God's favor in his life. He had seven sons, you see there, and three daughters, huge numbers of sheep and camels and oxen and servants. It says he was the last phrase of verse 3, he was the greatest of all the men of the East. Pretty indefinite location there. But great. So, a blameless man, a God-fearing man, a reverent man. God had blessed him with animals and servants. Verses 4 and 5 describe a specific instance now, I think, of Job's fear of God. Let's read it. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and thus Job did continually. Dads, what a model. What a model. He had two concerns, two massive concerns that every father should have. One is the glory of God. They may have cursed God. They may have cursed God. Nobody curses God and gets away with it. I must vindicate God. I must somehow repair the injury done to God. I must do something in order to lift up the name of God as what I believe it is, infinitely valuable and worthy. And then he loved his kids. He didn't want them to perish. He didn't want them to come under the judgment of God. So here is a specific instance of this fear of God and this blamelessness and this uprightness, his vigilance for the name of, of God. All right, now, there's the man. Drop down to verse 13, and here comes the calamity. We're coming back to what we skipped in just a moment, but we'll come back for a specific reason. Verse 13, the calamity comes. It was one of those feast days. All ten of his children were gathered in the same home, the oldest brother, now, the first calamity is this, verse 14 and 15. A messenger comes to Job and tells him that 
foreign Sabaeans had attacked and stolen all his oxen and asses and, and killed all the servants. That's blow number one. Verse 16 is blow number two. Messenger comes and says that the fire of God, this is probably lightning, the fire of God. Notice God. We'll, we'll talk about how that relates to Satan, but notice fire of God. He could be mistaken. Maybe he got it wrong. Maybe it wasn't the fire of God, but we'll, we'll, we'll check that out and see what Job thinks and whether the writer of the book agrees with Job. But right now, the assessment is this is the fire of God that has fallen and destroyed all the, the sheep and the servants with them. Blow number three is in verse 17. Another messenger comes and says that the Chaldeans had raided the camel herd and taken them all and killed the servants. And now comes blow number four in verses 18 and 19, that all the children, all ten of them, were crushed to death when a tornado or something like it caused their house to collapse. Two calamities are done by evil men. You see them there, Sabaeans and Chaldeans, verse 15 and 17. And two calamities come by what insurance companies would call, at least they used to, acts of God or nature in this case. Lightning and fire and a tornado, wind, in verses 16 and 19. And all of his prosperity and family, except for his wife, are gone in one afternoon. All of it. He goes from being the greatest man of the East to being stricken. He has no herds. All the wealth of a man, in, evidently in this culture, was defined in terms of his servants and his cattle and his sheep and his asses and his camels, and they're gone. And his children are gone. Imagine, imagine, ten children and all your wealth. This is huge. So the question is, what in the world is going on? And you can't figure it out if you only have the world. What in the world is going on, there's no answer. Something we skipped over is going on, and it isn't in the world. What in the world is going on is not the only question to ask. It's what in heaven is going on. What in heaven's name is going on? Now let's back up and see what's going on. Verses 6 to 12 describe a meeting between God and Satan. Verse 7, Satan says he spends all of his time going to and fro on the earth, moving around on the earth. Like Peter says, Satan prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour faith. Then God puts on display a trophy that he delights in very much. Verse 8, let's read verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, this is very strange of God. Suppose you're a jeweler, and you have a jewelry store, and you come back late at night, and you walk in, there's a thief there. And you say, oh, by the way, have you seen the big diamond in the front window? That's exactly what's going on here. Let's, let's make sure we don't miss how strange this is. Have you he comes he comes from roving around this this lion this this hateful murderer liar deceiver from the beginning and God in some 
inscrutable way admits him into some kind of conversation. And uh, he says, uh, have you considered Job as a target? Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, there's a nice diamond in the front window, if you haven't noticed. Now, God is not a fool, and he's not a bumbler. He says, oh, I didn't know you were a thief. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were the devil. I didn't know you were the one who kills people and hates people and, and deceives people. God is not a fool. This is not a mistake. This is, he's not bumbling here. He is setting Job up for terrible calamity. He's manifestly proud of Job. God exults in Job's reverence in God. If you've ever wondered how those several texts in the New Testament, like Romans 2 and I think 1 Thessalonians 1, where it talks about God's praise coming our way, Every man's commendation will be from the Lord. Now, how can, how can that theologically be? We, praise goes that way, not this way. God is very pleased with Job. And the reason is because Job's faith and Job's reverence is an echo of the glory of God, which is the thing God loves most. So if you have a heart disposition of childlike trust and delight in the glory of God. It is such a magnificent mirror of the glory of the Lord that when he looks down and sees his face shining back to him in your faith, he says, I like that. I affirm that. like that about you. And that's what he saw in Job. He's very, very proud of this man. Well, Satan is not impressed with this declaration. And he insinuates in verse 9, you see this, he insinuates that Job is no great specimen of reverence for God. And the way he insinuates it is by saying, well, who wouldn't, who wouldn't like you if they have camels and asses and cows and sheep and servants and health and ten kids and the greatest man in the East? Get off it, God. You are not his treasure. Those are his treasures. Now, that's a great assault on God's glory, a great assault on God's value in Job's heart. So, verse 11, Satan says, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. Just take away what he's leaning on. Knock the crutches of prosperity out of his life, and he won't fall on you with worship. He will curse you to your face. Now, God does not need to prove anything to anybody. God knows the heart of Job. But God loves to put his glory on display for the angels and for the devils and for the world by having his people show where their heart really is, namely in God rather than in things and health and family. This comes to my mind to mention Lazarus here. John 11, 
Word come. My brother's sick. Come. Jesus intentionally waits two more days. Word comes, he's dead. Jesus, good, let's go. And they, and they questioned him, why did you wait? And he said, because of your faith. He'd rather have him dead if it would produce more faith than keep him alive if it would produce less faith. Now, he is going to bring him back, but he wouldn't have had to bring him back. There, in other words, Christ's priorities about what he wants for you, 400 folks in this room, is so different from your priorities, probably, that if you don't begin to get your mind saturated with his way of thinking, like commending his Job to this horrible marauder called Satan, then you won't be able to make sense out of the pain in your life. You'll tend to get angry and angry because your priorities are, if he loves me, he would do. And then you put your list, and it's not his list. It's not the way he thinks. Because what he values is hearts that are so enamored with him that that shines more clearly when everything we were leaning on is gone. That's what he really values. That's scary. That is scary theology because it seems to set us up to have to lose things in order to show our real metal. And that's true. You can do it voluntarily, all you rich folks. You can strip down to a wartime lifestyle and start spending yourself for others instead of padding yourself with more and more riches and more and more houses and more and more cars and more and more vacations and fatter and fatter retirement. You can do that so that God doesn't have to do it as severely. And I invite you to. Like Jesus. So happy. We were riding to our little cabin up there. I'm this little four-year-old who's not here anymore. And uh, we, we, read, we read the Gospels to her over and over and over again every day. And uh, we were talking about, maybe you'll see a deer. And she said, Maybe I'll see a fox in his hole. I said, yes! <laughs> because you know what she's quoting, don't you? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Follow me! I said, yes! Foxes have holes! <sighs> and I hope she grows up wrestling like you, I'm sure, do wrestle with whether to live in a hole or a nest or a certain kind of house or how much money to give and how to keep. It's not an easy question. I just invite you to uh, spare yourself some discipline and keep it simple. Now I've lost my place. I got carried away there. Where are we? Okay, yeah, I said God is God doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. He, but he cares very much about public displays of his value. Public displays of his value. So, verse 12. Behold, God says, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself do not put forth your hand. And then come the calamities that we've already seen. So God gives Satan permission to uh, unleash upon Job some terrible, terrible 
calamities. So God is in the process now, it seems, of demonstrating to Satan and to the heavenly hosts and to anybody else who has eyes to see that he himself is paramount in the heart of Job, not his cattle, not his children. So that's your question tonight. Are your children more precious than God? Will you become a rebel against God if you get home and they're all dead? What will you say to God? We will now, we will now look at the triumph that Job got on the first test. Job's reverence, it turns out, is not mercenary. This is one of the reasons I don't like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It, it tends to be mercenary. It tends to cause people not to lean more on God, but to lean more on the gifts of God. To always be thinking in terms of the blessings of God, not as a commune with God, but as a having of what God gives. And we become addicted to it, and we want more and more of it, and we always are thinking God, and subtly, subtly, it isn't God we love. It's stuff. And we develop ways of justifying more and more stuff, because God gives it, God gives it. Oh, God. So we think mainly in terms of gratitude when we ought to be thinking mainly in terms of adoration and affection and delight and trust and the preciousness of his personal communion, which is what we'll have the minute we die when we lose everything else. And if that is more precious to us than what we lose, what have we got in our Christianity? So how does he do? Let's read 20 and 21. Then Job arose, the news has come, his children are dead, he's lost everything. Then Job arose, he rent his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return, the Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I just want to die and go to heaven when I read that. I just am so thrilled with that answer. When I see that in my church, I feel like... Thank you. A little teeny piece of success. A little teeny piece of pastoral success. To me, growing a big church is no big deal. Carnal people grow big churches. Adulterers grow big churches. But to see a saint lose a wife, lose a husband, lose two kids, weep their eyes out, tear their shirt, lie on the floor, not curse God, and say, with all the pain and no hypocrisy and no easy, believe God anyhow, praise God anyhow, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. I bless him. Okay, I can quit now and retire. And I will have accomplished one little teeny thing. I have preached in such a way that maybe somebody got it. So I just want to produce jobs in this room like that, like that. That's what I want right there. That's the goal of this book. Blessed be the name of the Lord in the face of ten dead children. The superior worth of God. Does it not shine? (laughs) Does it not shine? I mean, we can have worship services and uh, 
like mine, for example, they celebrated my 20th anniversary and all my kids came home. I got five kids and guys lined up there and oh, I loved seeing my boys on the pew with their mom and little Talitha there beside them because they're scattered. One's in Ukraine and one's in Guatemala and one's in Chicago and, and two are at home and got them all there. And, and it's just all God word. Yes, amen. Thank you for 20 years. Thank you for the family. They all grew up here. They love you. They love the church. Except for one. Pray for one. He's right on the brink. So the point is, yeah, that, that, that shows God. But you know what would show God so much more? The funeral. If they all had been killed. And Noel and I are standing there at the front with five coffins. And I stand up with shaking voice and having to hold on to the pulpit, say, God is faithful. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That'd be bigger. That'd be bigger. It's great to celebrate, and we ought to celebrate the positive, glorious gifts of God. Don't feel guilty about that. That's good. I don't feel guilty at all about that 20th anniversary celebration. But the worth of God shines in a powerful way to the world when in the midst of suffering, we still don't curse God, but say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshiped. All right, that's test number one. Now, on the heels, I mean, you just can't believe this, can you? And, and many of you know this, when it rains, it pours, right? They come in batches. I don't know why. You know, you, you stub your toe. This is a little illustration. You stub your toe. You reach down to caress your toe. You stand up and hit your head on the cabinet door. Why, why back to back, Lord? Put the, put the head bang on one day and the toe stub on the other day. So they, they come in batches. I mean, little ones come in batches, big ones come in batches. Well, here's, here it is. Seven and eight of chapter two now. I'm skipping again. You see what I'm doing? I'm skipping over the heavenly scene to the, to the calamity here. It says he was afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a potsherd, a little broken piece of pot, with which to scrape himself, and he sat among the ashes. Now, let's get a picture of this. These are, these are not little measle-type sores. These are horrid, boil-like sores that, are, that open, run with pus, he scrapes them. He doesn't know anything about hygiene. Zero. As far as he knows, as far as he knows, his mud helps. I mean, it helps bee stings. Why wouldn't it help boils? So he scrapes himself with this dirty thing, and worms begin to grow in it. You say, how do you know there are worms in it? Because in chapter 7, verse 5, it describes it this way. There's dirt. There's worms. There's, there's opening, seeping of these sores, and they're from the top of his head, in his hair, on his face, on his neck and chest, on down to the bottom of his feet. It's horrible. It's just horrible. If you saw it, you'd probably want to throw up. It's just horrible. It's not, it's not any romantic suffering. We sometimes romanticize suffering. It's nothing romantic about suffering as a rule. So what's in the world? <laughs> is going on. Why this second? So let's go back now and figure out what's happening in heaven. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. God says in verse 3, 
Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you moved me against him. That's a very interesting phrase. You moved me against him. So maybe Job wasn't so far off when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, even though he had said to Satan, he's in your power. See the circularity of this? He's in your power. Lightning does. They call it the fire of God. Job joins by saying the Lord took away. And now God says, you move me against him. And I'm the one who gave him into your power. There's heavy things going on here. And we'll get them clarified in a moment. Have you considered my servant Job? He still holds fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without a cause. It wasn't sin that brought this down on Job's head. And again, Satan challenges the authenticity of Job's reverence. Here's what he says, verse 4. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. You put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. In other words, not just his kids and his cattle, his bone and his flesh. And he will curse thee to thy face. So again, it's the worth of God that's at stake here. Is God more valuable or is health more valuable? That's the issue in Job's life. Verse 6, here's what God says. Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So you can do with his body what you want. And now, what happens? How is it described? Satan, it says, afflicts him with these boils. And uh, his wife caves, which is so understandable, so understandable. Let's not be too hard on this woman because she has now seen all of her husband's wealth evaporate and she's barely begun to grieve over 10 crushed children. And now her husband gets a disease that is so hard she can't touch him. And she simply loses it. And in verse 9, she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Verse 10. Job says to her, now I'm, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt here and, and interpret him this way. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Meaning, you're not one of them, are you? You're not really one of them. This is not in character. You're speaking like a foolish woman. I don't know if that's the nuance of this sentence or not, but given the situation, I'm eager to help her out. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm hopeful that she'll come back. Though little is said. Um, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? You kind of want to shake Job here, don't you? And say, no, 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 no. Well, talk like that. Satan did this. Don't talk like that. 
Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Now, I think in heaven at this moment, just before those words were spoken, as she said, curse God and die, a great smile came across Satan's face. And all of the tens of thousands of angels watched to see if both of them would fall. And when they heard Job say, shall we not receive evil at the hand of God as well as good? 20,000 arms, angelic arms went up. Yes, Job, yes. God is more valuable than your health. Thank you. Thank you for holding fast to your God and to your integrity. And Satan's countenance falls. And that's the last we hear of him in this book. Never again is he on the scene in this book. He doesn't get one more mention in the whole book. So there's the scene. Chapter 1, 1 through 2, 10. That's all we're going to cover tonight. So, we're going to step back now and draw out truths. We're going to generalize for a few minutes. We've seen the text, get the lay of the land here. Let's draw out some truths and then some application. Truth number one, theological truth number one. Satan's aim is to destroy our joy in God and thus belittle God. Satan's aim is to destroy our joy in God. You can use another word if you want. You can use trust in God or satisfaction in God or delight in God or rest in God. Satan is after our joyful faith in God. And if he can ruin it, he'll make God look worthless to the world. Every time somebody forsakes God for the world or gets mad at God when part of the world is taken away from them, they highlight the world as valuable. And every time somebody stays with God when the world is taken away and praises God when the world is taken away, they highlight the value and glory of God. There are two ways that Satan assaults the glory of God in our lives. Pleasure and pain. He uses pain to make us feel that God is powerless and hostile. And he uses pleasure to make us feel that God is unnecessary. You got all the pleasures you want. You got your car, you got your house, you got your 911, you got your health insurance policy. Who needs God? Thank you. And that's Satan's success. Soil number three in the parable of the soils, right? The pleasures of this world choking the word of God. So whether it's pain in your life today or pleasure in your life today, Satan's after you and God's after you. God's purpose for pleasure is gratitude to him. God's purpose for pain is trusting him in spite of it so that he shines as more valuable than what you've lost. God's got designs in pleasure. Satan's got designs in pleasure. God's got designs in pain. Satan's got designs in pain. And they're the opposite designs in both cases. And life is war whether things are going well. And life is war when things are going bad. In fact, in America, I would say life is war more 
when things are going well. America is dying because things are going well, not because things are going badly. Sudan, different. Life is war there because kids are being sold into slavery. And Christians are having parts of their bodies cut off and being branded and suffering horrendous things. But which is the harder war? Well, Sudan's is harder in terms of physical pain. This is harder probably in terms of spiritual vitality and in terms of keeping our kids from being destroyed. Far more kids are destroyed by pleasures than pain. Far more. And I would rather have a dead kid any day who believes than a live kid who doesn't. And I've said that to all of them. You go to the mission field and die at 36, I will have 10,000 times more joy if you lived here till 86 and you die an unbeliever. <coughs> Give me a dead kid on the mission field any day than a live carnal unbeliever at home who's wealthy and prosperous with my grandchildren until they're 90. So that's the first point. Satan's aim is to destroy our joy in God and thus belittle God. Theological point number two. God aims to magnify his worth in the lives of his people who treasure him above everything else. God aims to magnify his worth in the lives of his people who treasure him above everything else. This is the reason you were created. This is the reason the universe was created. God created the universe to display his glory in the lives of his redeemed people who cherish, delight in, and treasure him above everything. Sometimes you can see it when they're living lives of gratitude in prosperity. You can see it even more clearly when they're living lives of joy in suffering. Rejoice in suffering, Paul says in Romans 5, 3. So we cleave to him. And when we cleave to him in the face of suffering, we're a mirror of his worth. Third theological observation. God grants to Satan limited power to cause pain. God grants to Satan limited power to cause pain. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself do not put forth your hand. Chapter 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Our God is not frustrated by the power and subtlety of Satan. Satan cannot make one move apart from the permission of God Almighty. He is a lion roaming around trying to destroy the saints, but he's on a leash and God gives it and he pulls it according to his sovereign will. There are secondary causes in the world, not just primary causes. And Satan is among those secondary causes. And behind them are primary causes, which is why after God says he's in your power, Satan, Job says the Lord has taken away. That's not a contradiction. The reason we know it's not a contradiction is because in verse 22 of this chapter, it says, chapter 1, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Meaning, what he, what he just said in verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, is not sin. That's the, that's the inspired writer's imprimatur upon Job's assessment of where this ultimately came from. And it came from God. 
So the writer is endorsing Job's interpretation of the death of his children. Sure, Satan was involved somehow. God said, he's in your power, do what you want. And sure, Satan's involved in our lives, big time, harassing. We should resist him, firm in our faith. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But when all is said and done, and you are crying and tearing your clothes and shaving your head and putting ashes on you, you rest with this ultimate truth. Not, there are two great truths, I mean powers in the universe. There's Satan and there's God, and they're vying for me, and I sure hope eventually God wins. That is not what Job teaches. Job teaches, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Or, as it says in chapter 2, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive boils? Even though it's crystal clear here that Satan afflicted him with boils. It says so. Satan afflicted him with boils. And Job says, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord? Look at all this prosperity we've enjoyed. You know, sometimes I've thought about that. I've been kneeling at my prayer bench in my study. I'm 54 and I vowed I've enjoyed 31 years of wonderful marriage, sexual delights, a friend of my soul, a woman who stands with me, edits my books, raises my children, is willing to let me go out and do things. She's been my, my all. And I said, if she dropped dead today, Lord, I right now should be so thankful for 31 years. Why should I expect any more? Who is John Piper? that I should expect 33 years and not just 31. Who would have thought I'd get 31? I'm a sinner. Isn't it amazing I've had her for 31 years? That's just amazing. I'm a sinner. C.J. Mahaney, you've got some PDI folks here. C.J. Mahaney's got a wonderful way when somebody asks him, how you doing? His favorite response is, better than I deserve. And the reason that's so good is because it forces him into a constant frame of gratitude. And that's unmistakable in the PDI movement. No accident. Shall we receive 31 years of good marriage at the hand of the Lord and not receive 10 years of cancer? So when, when it comes... Should I not remember the 31 years as an absolutely undeserved bounty instead of getting mad that he should have given me 20 more of a healthy body or a healthy wife? You see, we Americans, we are so rights-driven. I have rights that we transfer it to God as though he owes us anything. You know what? A little piece of news for you. God owes you nothing. Your life is a gift. You have it on loan from God. You are trustees of every breath you take, every movement of a healthy muscle. You are a trustee while you have it. And you will not have it much longer. And you don't deserve to have it at all. And therefore, when God takes it, He's doing you no wrong. I have uh, no more time.
And I'm going to summarize my last three points in three minutes. Anyway, three personal implications. Number one, let's say them real quickly. They're real plain. You could draw them out for yourself and we'll pick them up tomorrow. Personal implication number one, let us join with Job and affirm with all of our hearts the absolute sovereignty of God in our suffering. Let's join with Job. We don't need to have all the answers. I don't presume to give you all the answers. We just see the truth. Let's join with Job and embrace the absolute sovereignty of God. Let's say with the psalmist, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Or with Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Personal implication number two, let your tears flow freely when your calamity comes. Please do not hear me as teaching a theology or a pastoral strategy that says, well, I guess we can't cry if that's true. I guess we can't rip our clothes. I guess we can't pull our hair. I guess we can't shave our head. I guess we can't throw ashes on. I guess we can't scream. Don't hear me that way. Weep with those who weep. Here's the, you say, well, isn't, aren't we supposed to rejoice in tribulation? Aren't we supposed to count it all joy? Yes. But did you know, yes, you do know, especially if you're older, that joy and weeping can exist simultaneously in one heart? Don't you know that? Don't you know that? My mother was killed when I was 28 in a car accident, and I discovered it real quick, that joy and weeping can exist simultaneously in one heart. Heaving sobs, heaving sobs can exist simultaneously with thank you, thank you, thank you for her. Thank you for her life. Thank you for her faith. Thank you for my faith. Thank you that my dad's still alive. Thank you. There's all kinds of reasons to have deep, unshakable joy while you're heaving with sobs. You know that. This is not a contradiction to say count it all joy and to say rejoice in tribulation and to weep your eyes out when your kid goes wrong or the lump is discovered or whatever. It's not. So I just say, let's join him in weeping. Join him in weeping. Learn to cry. Learn to cry much, especially with others. Last, last implication. Trust the goodness of God and let him be your treasure and your joy. Psalm 63.3, I mentioned at the beginning. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And if the steadfast love of the Lord experientially, now in this world and fully in the age to come, is better than life, then we don't lose it when we lose life. And we don't lose it when we lose everything that life can give. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are weighty and big things. Easy to talk about, not easy to live. And so we're, we're praying now. We're praying. Would you please help us to be shaped by them in our minds and transformed in our affections so that we embrace your supremacy and your beauty and your value, your justice, your goodness, your truth, your mercy, your compassion, your sovereign power over all things as our greatest treasure. Give us an embracing of it, Lord. Teach us to rest in it so that we will be ready with Paul, to abound and to be abased, to hunger and to have plenty. We can do all things.
works through Christ who strengthens us. We can live and we can die through him who strengthens us. In his name we pray.